Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. You're listening to episode 153. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here. We've got a great guest lined up today. But before we get into that, if you haven't yet, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, wherever you're listening to it at, so you'll be notified of future episodes and won't miss any great content like we've got lined up today. Well, today our guest is Omar Khan. Omar is a Chartered Financial Analyst, or CFA, Investor and Wealth Manager. Omar is the founder and president of Boardwalk Wealth, which is a private equity firm located in Dallas, Texas. Omar and his team at Boardwalk help specifically international investors with U.S.-based multifamily real estate opportunities, and their unique focus is helping specifically Canadians identify commercial real estate in the southern United States. Well, Omar is responsible for capital raising, strategic planning, and investor relations, he also has 10 years of global investment experience, where he participated in capital financing and M&A transactions valued at over $3.7 billion. Omar has since moved from Canada and now lives in Texas with his wife and newborn son. Well, Omar and I have several mutual contacts in the real estate investing world, so I reached out to him because I know he can provide so much value to you, the audience members. So without further ado, let's bring Omar onto the podcast. Omar Khan. Omar, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you very much. We finally get to do this after what, one or two reschedulings? Yeah, it's been a long time coming. You know, you and I have actually have some mutual contacts in the real estate investing world. So, you know, we've known about each other for a while and I'm, yeah, really excited to have you on the podcast today. Now, Omar, for the people who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started in the world of real estate investing and just kind of your journey up to this point? So, yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I'm on your podcast. I'd love to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, I graduated from college uh, in the middle of 2008. Uh, not the best time to graduate if you're in finance, but I wrangled a job purely based on networking in our world like of Canada. I'm a Canadian guy. Uh, again, power of networking, right? You know the right people. They kind of put in the right word for you. And in a bad market, you get a job. Kind of did that whole investment banking M&A thing for about close to 10 years, 10, 11 years. Moved down to the U.S. three years ago. And my family's, and I did about $3.7 billion of deals, you know, advisory and all of that kind of stuff. So my family, for instance, uh, they're an entrepreneurial family. They've always had real estate, commercial real estate, but that wasn't like their main thing. You know, this is where they parked their money. And just growing up, uh, you know, just around the, the dining table, you know, I'd hear my uncles and my father talk about say, hey, you know, we've got the strip mall. Uh, this lease is coming due and we have two people and one is a better quality credit tenant. 
but you know, as an example, they'll pay us slightly less money versus somebody who can pay us more money. But eh, you know, we're kind of iffy about this guy's credit quality. You know, just those sorts of conversations, visiting a lot of these sites, kind of doing the analysis, rough analysis at the back of your head. Nothing structured. You know, it wasn't like some grand plan to get into real estate. And just learning by the process of osmosis. So when I moved down here three years ago, I had some of my own money, my family's money, and then I was managing some private money in Canada. And we wanted to invest, so we just came here. We started looking around. There's a uh, start talking to a lot of people, met a lot of interesting people, met a lot of some not so interesting people that we tried to avoid. <laughs> and here we are, three years later. Now we're doing deals, uh, primarily syndicating large multifamily deals across Texas and Florida. Yeah, it's always interesting to see how people wind up in the world of real estate investing because very few people start out actually intentionally studying it or even have a related degree. So you, at least to some extent, have a pretty good background that translates well to real estate investing. That is, you are a CFA, a certified financial analyst. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's chartered, but don't worry. About chartered, it. okay, yeah. Well, see, it's I'm it's a really fancy way. It's a really fancy way of saying that I spend most of my twenties and early thirties slaving away eighty to one hundred hours a week, just <laughs> valuing complex assets, doing side tours, property tours, you know, all, all that jazz. So it was just a fancy way of saying. That. Yeah. Okay. So chartered financial analyst. So yeah. now here you are, you move from Canada down to Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, where you decide mm -hmm. you're going to get into the world of real estate investing. So kind of mm -hmm. walk us through that journey and what that looked like for you. You know, lots of people have different paths, you know, lots of people will mm -hmm. first buy a single family home and then maybe a duplex and then kind of grow it or maybe some people invest passively. So what did your journey look like for you? Well, look, I already had a lot of experience uh, being on the investments management side, on the sell side, on the investment banks and all of that. So I was always around this kind of environment. So I already knew how the deals are structured, what to look for, how to analyze, how to you know, meet property brokers, uh, networking, all that kind of stuff. Because I was doing that for the past 10 years, in oil and gas and asset management. So I already had a lot of that background, just, just because of my professional experiences. How I decided to get into it is, look, my wife's a physician. Uh, I run one, two businesses now. And while, thank God, so far we're making good money, you know, we still need areas to park our money. And for us as higher income earners, we also need investments that are tax efficient. So it's not just making more money, but trying to keep more of it. And, you know, a lot of what happened is, you know, once you start meeting people, you start realizing, okay, I know how to structure deals. I've been doing these deals before. You meet interesting people. And then one thing leads to another. But a lot of these are based on the fact that it wasn't just direct uh, real estate experience, which I'm actually very happy that I didn't have direct real estate experience from the word go, because it gives me a lot of perspective. Because now, look, for instance, when I was in oil and gas, I was structuring way more complex deals because there's just so much volatility. There's so many other moving parts that you can't control that you just really have to be have your eyes on the ball. So that's given me a lot of perspective. To basically, when I look at deals, when we structure deals, when we're, we're talking to people, you really hone in on the weak points, like super duper, 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 right? So that's how I kind of got into it. It's tax efficiency, background, professional experiences, and just the fact that we had some money, we had access to networks, and it's growing. You know, now more people know about us. We're able to provide them information that, to be honest with you, other syndicators can't even come close to. Just, because, again, based on our personal professional experiences. Yeah. Okay. So you moved down to Dallas, Fort Worth, decide, Hey, you know, you've got a pretty good background in at least the finance of things. Yeah. You understand how to vet deals, analyze deals, what to look for, how to structure deals. So, you know, you've got a really good step up on the competition. So what did your first real estate deal look like? How did you really make your entry into the real estate investing world? So what happened is I was never of the, maybe I'm a millennial also, my parents make fun of this. I was never of the inclination of buying a house. I just, honestly, I still think, mathematically it makes zero sense to buy a house 
single house. And if you're buying just one house and that's kind of it. Mathematically, it makes zero sense. And I'm a very quantitatively driven person. So for me, you know, when I do the rent versus buy scenario in most nicer, desirable neighborhoods where I wanted to live in or where I had lived in, that calculation wasn't making sense. Now, look, if you're in the 90s or 80s, yeah, you could buy a house for $100,000 and that's a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. Things are different now, right? So how we got into deals is the first deal was actually I advised a friend's, uh, there's a family friend out of Canada and their father had bought an office portfolio in Houston. And what had happened is now that the father is older, the kids are older and now it's, you know, they have to pass it on to the next generation. When I was in Dallas, they gave me a call and said, hey, look, you know, we, we're trying to do some estate planning here. Why don't, do you mind meeting us in Houston, trying to look at these deals, giving us your opinion on what's going on because we know you're in this. And you know, you've got all this background and I kind of managed some money for them in Canada. So that's how I kind of got into it. You know, I kind of looked, I structured a deal for them where they could refi their money, but in a more tax efficient way because they had to repatriate it back to Canada, right? So you could do that. They still owned the office portfolio, but now they had money to give to their kids because uh, their daughter was getting married. She didn't want any part of this real estate thing. She just wanted her inheritance, right? Yeah, sure. But they also didn't want to sell these assets because these are really nice assets. So, you know, you kind of work around those sorts of things. That kind of got me started. And then, you know, we started doing multifamily. The first deal was, I think, 196 units. Again, by deal, I mean, I wasn't the only person. I have partners who do very specific things. So I didn't want everybody to be like me. You know, I have partners who have complementary skill sets. So, you know, together we did that deal. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of goes back to what you mentioned at the beginning of the show, and that is the power of networking. So what you're doing is, you know, using your skills, finding other people have complementary skills and then helping people deploy their assets or, you know, maybe structure their deals or diversify from their one property into other deals. So yeah, really cool. So you're kind of in the world of syndicating larger deals, it sounds. Yep. Yeah. So look, you know, and, the, and the, sorry, and the biggest, I just wanted to clarify, look, the biggest thing is no man is an island, right? We all have to work with each other because we can all leverage each other's skills. So for instance, I have a partner, Reed, you know, he's an engineer, right? Look, man, no matter how many books I read, no matter how many weekend seminars I take at the airport Sheraton with some guru, I don't know, <laughs> wherever, there's no way I'm going to beat that guy. Okay. He's really, really, really good at being an engineer, apart from the fact that he's a great guy. I have another friend who's marketing. He's just purely a marketing. Now, we're all marketing, but he is more marketing, sure. right? And I compete against that guy in marketing? Hell no. He's going to crush me. But why play a game where, you know, it's not your strength? Why not play a game where you have partners, you can rely on them for their strengths, and they rely on you for your strengths, so together you go quicker, faster. Yeah, now that's a really interesting point you bring up, and that is our pal Reed Goosens. I think Reed aired on maybe one of the earlier episodes in the podcast. I want to say is maybe episode five or somewhere in that range. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Reed, if you guys recall, is the Australian. He, you know, he lives here in the U.S. Yeah, now. you can't mistake his accent for anything else. <laughs> Doesn't sound like you nor I. That's for sure. <laughs> well, he does. He sounds very Australian. There's yes. no way you can confuse that guy for anything else. Yeah. So Reed's story is he's a structural engineer, came over here to the U.S., got started investing in smaller multifamily deals, and now is syndicating larger deals in the Texas market. So yeah. And very successful, by the way. Yes, definitely so. So what you're saying, Omar, (coughs) is you're going to go out and find people who skills complement yours. You're not going to go try out to, you know, replicate their skill or compete with them because like you mentioned, you're not ever going to learn as much about structural engineering as Reed does, right? And vice versa. To be honest with you, man, I don't even want to learn about structural engineering. (laughs) See, there you go. You don't have to. You just have to know a Reed. (laughs) So yeah, so now 
Now, kind of walk us through, you know, the world of syndication as you see it, Omar, and, you know, how it benefits, you know, both investors and, of course, yourself and the other syndicators. Look, from the investor's perspective, how it benefits is, uh, look, if you're going to buy, say, a house, as an example, let's use a simple example everybody understands. If you go buy a house, I'm assuming, look, unless you're buying somewhere really, you know, in a D class, I'm assuming like a pretty simple suburb, nice suburb, you know, middle class sure. people. You're going to all in, you're going to eventually, by the time you're done with the rehab and all of this, you're probably going to be investing 50 grand all in. It might take you a year, but you're going to do it because that's just the way it is, right? On average. Now, there's going to be a lot of problems you're going to be facing that way. First of all, this model is not at all scalable. So tomorrow, if you wanted to go, say, two, ten you know, eventually go up that ladder where essentially this replaces your income from your J-O-B, it's going to be hard because money is very illiquid in real estate, right? Yes. That's number one. Number two is that if you're any sort of an earner, it's not how much money you make, it's how much money you keep. So you don't get a lot of tax benefits out of single family houses. Now, am I saying they are the bad, a bad investment? No, because it's very deal dependent. Like somebody gives you a million dollar house for 50,000, take it. Don't argue <laughs> Take the money, right? <laughs> the money, take the deal. But we're talking averages. And then what happens on top of that is so tax efficiencies, economies of scale. The biggest thing that happens is you can now, when you do syndications, uh, multifamily, office, whatever, you can get into properties that you probably otherwise would not have gotten into. And see, these were properties, say, even 10, 20 years ago, that only the ultra rich people were getting into. Or if you belong to the right country club and you knew the right guy in the country club, then you would be getting into these opportunities. Now, uh, by the power of partnering up with the right people. Again, it's very important to partner up with the right people because everybody can say they're a marketing guru or a syndicator or an underwriter or whatever, but saying and doing are two very different things, right? But through that partnership, through that relationship, you can get access to deals that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten, which means you grow your money at a much faster clip. These are better quality assets, right? In terms of just returns. Sure. And the other, the lastly, the biggest thing is, as a passive investor, you don't really have as long as you develop the relationship. So first of all, there's nothing passive about being a passive investor because you have to develop the relationship. You have to find the right people, see if they're a good fit. You know, you have to see the right deals. you know, all of those sorts of work. And then you kind of have to monitor your investment from time to time. But once you do that, and once you have a system in place, you're not going out there and looking for deals. Other people are looking for deals. Now, they get compensated, like I get compensated, but you're also getting a better quality asset that you would not never have gotten otherwise. So from our angle, how do we get compensated, right? We get compensated on the fact that, look, this is basically a business. Now, people think, oh, you're investing in real estate at school. It's like, no, dude, because what happened is at the first year that, because part of this is marketing also, right? The first year, like your podcast, right? The first year you're doing this, I honestly, a lot of times you feel like an old man shouting into the air, right? <laughs> right? Hey, so I, mean, I know how to do this. I'm structuring you and doing it. Why are you not coming in, right? What's the hang up? So it's a factor of time. This is a business for us. And how we get compensated is that the deals we put together, the investors we bring together, and then we execute on the business plan, we get compensated purely on how much equity we have developed in the deal. So if I buy something for 10 million, I sell it for 20 million, I'm making 90% of the money that I make in the deal is on the equity. So, I mean, but that sucks also, right? If deals don't go your way, you didn't really make any money for three or five years on that deal. But we prefer making it on the equity because we feel it's better aligns us with the investors. You know, we're not we're not trying to do a job here, but investors know the more money they make only after they've made more money, then we can make more money. 
Yeah, yeah, interesting. And there's two really interesting points and maybe hot topics that you've brought up so far. And I want to kind of dive into each of them individually. So just real quick, you know, you mentioned renting versus buying, and then second phase, investing in single family houses versus investing in multifamily or commercial real estate. So break down just your your quick analysis of renting versus buying, you know, as a young professional millennial kind of getting started in the workforce, kind of just break down your purview on the finances behind renting versus buying a home? Look, uh, first of all, I can go very deep into this rent versus buy (laughs) thing, but bigger than that, what we've also got to realize as millennials is there is no 20-year jobs anymore. People don't work 20 years in the same company, in the same city, in the same part of town forever. That thing is gone. Okay, that thing doesn't even exist anymore. So as a millennial, especially as a millennial, because you're young, you're newer to the workforce, you need a certain amount of flexibility. Look, if you're a white-collar professional and a blue-collar professional, by the way, you need a certain amount of flexibility because you have to go where the jobs are. The jobs aren't going to come to you. And those days are gone where you could just be in one city doing one job for 20 years and they give you a little gold-plated watch at the end of your 20 years of service and boom, you're retired now. That doesn't work anymore. So even without the whole finances and the math and the this and that, you got to realize, man, when you buy a house, you're committing yourself for five, 10 years. I mean, that's just the way it is. So you got to decide. If that job that pays you, let's assume you make 70, 80 grand a year, if a job comes up that pays you an extra 40, 50 grand a year, which is very possible, by the way, right? If you're in some of these STEM professions, you know, science, technology, engineering, man, are you going to say no because I bought a house? I mean, that's shooting yourself in the foot, right? Really does limit you. Yeah, it limits you. And especially at the start of your career in the job market that we have these days, you can't limit yourself because you're going to go behind the eight ball. So Take the math out of the equation. Just look at it from a lifestyle and career perspective. Then you put in math. Now, I'm assuming a lot of these millennials are college or university graduates. You know, they're STEM majors or, you know, people making reasonable money, right? I mean, they're not just crushed under student debt all the time, right? So if you're an engineer, you're a finance guy, you're a mathematics engineering, whatever, medical and healthcare, one of these professions, you basically don't have enough time, okay? Either you do your job or you go then buy houses. I mean, you can do you can do both, but you'll do a crappy job at both. So you've got to pick and choose your battles. Right? <laughs> and number third, now you get to the maths. You start realizing that, look, if you want to live in desirable parts of town, the way things are going is, because with the interest rates being sold down, the price of houses have exploded. I mean, relative to inflation, relative to your other costs, right? You have to look at everything relative to how much your income has grown. So whereas earlier in Texas, you could be an engineering major and you could buy in a reasonable part of town, say in Houston, so if you make, say, $70,000 a year, you could buy, say, a $180,000 house, right? So that's roughly two and a half times, give or take your, your income, right? If you look at it like that. that. Yeah, right. You can't buy a nice house with two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand 300000 now. Yeah, and that's so true. Right? So that multiple is gone. You just have to work more to get to the same spot, right? So think of it that way. I mean, if you got to do more work to sit in the same spot, and then rents concurrently haven't gone up the same way as prices have gone up. Right? So if prices have increased by, say, double digits over five years, rents have gone up three, four, five percent, three, four, five, five and a half percent. Yeah, so right. Here, if you just look at simple math, rents go up by, say, four percent. Property prices go up by 10 percent. So net net, if you do the math, in fact, in most major markets in the U.S., as a renter, you're actually saving money, hundreds of dollars every month. And there's, there's no argument against math because math applies everywhere. 
<laughs> yeah, really good points, Omar. And I, I really like the uh, qualitative uh, features you outlined there in addition to the quantitative. So, you know, I think a lot of people who buy houses do so more out of qualitative, you know, kind of emotion-based yeah. reasons, not so much, you know, mathematics and personal finance, you know, involved in that. So just interesting to hear somebody like yourself who, you know, is a CFA kind of weigh in on their opinion of the rent versus buy. And just, yeah, it's interesting to hear that. So, so for those, Look, people, I don't actually think there's anything wrong with buying a house. So by the way, just to let you know, I just feel like if you're, there's a difference between buying a house because you want to live in a community and you're willing to make that sacrifice because you have a kid and you know all that jazz versus investing in a house. There's two very different things. <laughs> yeah, so now let's switch gears and talk about investing in a single family house versus larger or even medium-sized multifamily or commercial mm -hmm. real estate. So compare and contrast mm -hmm. those two for us. Well, number one, first of all, the biggest problem, again, qualitative, toilets and tenants. You know, toilet overflows, your tenant, I don't know, bulb doesn't work. It's 2 a.m. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. right. Fix it. Well, I don't know. If you, you might like getting up at 2 a.m. I hate getting up at 2 a.m. Right? I have a son and he wakes me up at weird hours of the night because he's one years old. But man, I don't like it. <laughs> but he's my son. If I don't like it when he's my son, when there's a tenant, man, I mean, look, it just doesn't work, number one. Number two, what happens is, even if you get property management, property management on single family houses averages anywhere between eight to 10% more along the 10% side. Mm -hmm. Don't any money you're gonna make, the $100, $200 you're going to make a month cash flowing, that's all going to the property manager, right? And then one thing breaks down, your boiler breaks down, your HVAC unit goes away, your AC is down, the two years worth of cash flow goes away like that. The, the $200 you saved a month for, I don't know, 24 months is $4,800, right? Yeah, That's less right. than the cost of a boiler. Yeah. You're so how much right. money did you make? Net net you lost money, right? On average. And, and then third cash flow perspective, yes. Yeah, cash flow perspective, right? Because you can't eat appreciation till you sell the house. Right. Right. So unless you're planning on selling the house and availing your appreciation, you gotta live on the income you generate right now. Yes. Right? And then thirdly, what also happens is well, there's four points. Thirdly, what happens is you get zero economies of scale as we talked earlier. So if you want to grow your investments at a fast clip. Dude, you better have a really rich father or a mother <laughs> or an uncle, I don't know, or win the lottery because it ain't going to happen. Right? Yeah, and fourth, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. What were you saying? You well, have a rich saying, father? <laughs> no, I certainly don't. <laughs> but, you know, I found this out in my own, in my own uh, personal real estate investing, Omar. My very first investment was a single family house. And, you know, at the time it seemed like a good idea. I still have that single family house to this day, but I quickly realized, hey, things are not scalable. You know, if I want, say, a portfolio that generates $40,000 a month in passive income, that's going to be a lot of these single family oh, yeah. homes. And they were so hard to acquire at the time. You know, it took me a, a substantial amount of money relative to what I was earning at the time to buy Even this. the effort. Yes, effort, money, and maintaining it. So yeah, there's just a lack of economies of scale in single family homes. Now, I think sometimes you can get some good appreciation and sometimes yeah. you can generate some good cash flow in certain parts of the country. Oh, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to scale that type of portfolio. So yeah. That, yeah, but just on the appreciation side though, right? You That also means you're probably buying, in all likelihood, not always, but in all likelihood, you're also buying in very expensive parts of the country because you know they're more affluent, just getting in is very expensive and that's why prices keep going on because more and more and more people want to move to that neighborhood. So you bought in San Francisco, dude, my sister lives in Mountain View because my brother-in-law works in Facebook. Dude, I mean, my brother-in-law works in Facebook. She works at a tech company. They make very nice money. You know, they're not poor. I'm telling you, they make really nice money. 
And my sister was telling me when she visited me in Dallas, she's like, you know what? We're thinking of buying a house, but there's no way we can afford a house in Mountain View. Because the house is starting at like a shack, a burnt down shack sold for a million dollars. They were just going to raise it. <laughs> That's so crazy. Right. And lastly, just to get on my spiel and get off my little soapbox is, uh, you know, just tax benefits, guys. It's not how much money you make, it's how much money you keep. You don't get a lot of accelerated depreciation benefits, a lot of small little non-cash expenditures that you can then expense and, you know, take against your income. And this way you retain more money. You cannot do it with single family houses. Yeah. So just for a second, elaborate on the tax benefits of multifamily versus single family and some of the differences there. Maybe something you're alluding to is uh, accelerated depreciation in multifamily uh, assets. Cost, so just kind of elaborate on some of the pros and cons of each there. Well, the biggest one is cost segregation, but also with the changing tax laws that I think were done this year. I think so. Yeah. With the changing tax laws, uh, tax laws, what's also happening is a lot of expenditures that you were, had to streamline over a couple of years, you can take that in the first year. So what's happening now is it's really weird. You could make, say, a hypothetical example, you could make, say, $100,000, but you have write off, say, $150,000, and you end up, and these are, by the way, all non cash. So you don't really spend money. You understand? So right. that, and this is what happens is you can then keep all of that $100,000 and you have $50,000 next year to offset against your income. So let's assume next year you only made 50 grand. Well, you got all of that tax free. Yes. And yeah. You can't do that with houses. The reason why you can't do that with houses is because it's just not cost effective. By the time an engineer comes, does his studies, does all of this kind of stuff, they dig a hole, da, 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 da. Dude, that thing costs like 20 grand. Minimum. Yeah. You you certainly can't, you know, most of the times do cost segregation studies on single family homes yeah. just because it's cost prohibitive. It wouldn't yeah. outweigh the benefits. So, yeah. so, you know, okay. So now Omar, we've decided, Hey, we're going to maybe consider at least renting versus buying. We're going to now invest and, you know, we're going to invest. Let's just go straight to multifamily. So how does one mm -hmm. go about doing that? You know, investing in single family homes is at least attainable from a personal finance perspective. You can save up mm -hmm. enough money to invest in a down payment, but a lot of people, mm -hmm kind of think that they don't have the ability or the means to invest in larger multifamily. So how does one go about doing that? Well, number one, like all other things in life, it's a very relationship heavy business. So you've got to go out there, you got to network, meet the right people. And I stress the right people because there might be a lot of people who are really good at what they do, but they might not be a good fit for you as an example. You understand? So that's also very important. Or there just might be people who just don't know what they're doing, right? And you don't want to be with those people also, right? No. <laughs> Number two, for instance, if you think it's very cost prohibitive, I think it's a, it's a mental block for a lot of people, I've realized. And the way things are changing, especially crowdfunding online, even if you don't want to go the private equity route, syndications, all of that, you can go cost uh, crowdfunding. There are lots of websites out there that you can use their platform to look at assets all around the US, even internationally. These are very well-respected companies. So it's not like some guy in his basement trying to run a scam. Right? Yeah, they're very well-respected companies, right? Yeah. So you can do the crowdfunding route. Uh, we prefer, look, a lot of our investors prefer to not take the crowdfunding route because they like to develop a relationship. They like to understand what's going on and get more deeper, granular access. Mm -hmm. So when you start, like, you know, when I told you, when I moved to Texas, I started talking to a lot of people. And a lot of times, look, I've realized in my life that the quality of the answers you receive is directly proportional to the quality of the questions you ask. So if you ask really nice, good questions, well, you're going to get good answers. If you ask really dumb questions, you're going to get really dumb answers. <laughs> I like that. You know, so what's, what's an example of what you mean by that, Omar, when you're developing these relationships, what are good questions to ask? Is that what you're alluding to? 
Yeah. So for instance, just starting off, let's, this is assuming you have no real estate knowledge, no finance knowledge, no whatever. Literally just ask somebody, okay, what do you do? Walk me through a typical deal. And uh, what happens when this deal doesn't work? Because, and it, it, I realized this um, when I was doing this is institutionally, when you work at a bank and you work at a private equity shop, uh, and when you're looking at a deal, the first question invariably a lot of sophisticated investors ask is, what is the risk in this deal? Like, how can I lose my money? How many chances are there of me losing money? But a lot of folks, when you're talking uh, on the retail level, you know, non-sophisticated investors, when you talk to them, they ask, okay, what are the returns? Well, dude, anybody can make anything look good on paper, but it's not about, you know, looking good on paper. It's about actually getting returned. So look at the risks first, try to understand how you can lose your money and then try to understand, well, if you do lose your money, because things happen, by the way, you could do everything right and still lose money because that's just the way it is sometimes. You have to ask the person, the sponsor, hey, what do you do when the property doesn't work out? Can you give me an example? What is your communication schedule? And by the way, just because an investor or a sponsor has had a property that didn't make money, that's not a bad thing, by the way, because they still might be doing all the right things. And they're honest enough to tell you, look, sometimes things don't work out because nobody can hit home runs all the time. And you want to be with that person more than somebody who says, well, you know, everything I touch turns gold. <laughs> it's not always good. That's not a good long-term recipe for success. Yeah. Well, that's just one unique way of asking good questions rather than asking, Hey, what are the returns on this investment? Think, you know, what's your proven track record? What yeah. are the risk mitigation strategies? Exactly. What are you, what's your experience in a deal like this? You know? So yeah, I, I think asking quality questions gets you quality answers and good point there. And you know, just as a shameless plug, by the way, on our website, we have a blog where Literally, we covered this topic in so much detail, how to vet a multifamily sponsor. I mean, this is like a deep dive. And the reason why we wrote this massive article is because we have a lot of investors who ask us the same questions. And we tell them, look, we know we're 100% transparent. We know, we're, we know what we're doing. But I've been on the other side where I have invested with other people. And these were the questions I asked. So maybe you should, this, you know, when you look at somebody else's question, that gives you perspectives. So maybe think about that. So when you go to our blog, you, shameless blog, by the way, you can, you can see these things and amongst a lot of other topics. So that'll give you an idea of what more sophisticated older investors are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And I, I like what you're doing there. So that website, just to reference it is boardwalkwealth.com where you kind of originate most of your content yeah. blogs, that kind of stuff from, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Omar, what would you tell this, you know, younger investor looking to get started, uh, you know, investing in multifamily deals, but maybe have that mental block, maybe don't realize that these opportunities are available to them. What would you tell somebody like that? Well, I would tell them it's, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I've learned this the hard way, so I can tell you this very easily. <laughs> patience. Uh, patience is very important. A lot of times people are eager to get into it when they hear of a new concept. They're just eager to get into a deal. Don't do that. In fact, a mentor of mine told me once that the deal of the century comes by every two weeks. <laughs> so, so, you know, don't worry about it. Take some time to learn. Take some time to ask questions. It's like developing a relationship with people. Take your time, learn, educate yourself, but be very, very, very patient. If you think you want to invest in three months, forget it. Invest in six months. Give yourself time because it's very easy to get into a deal. But man, it's really hard to get out of one. Yeah, interesting points there too. Well, Omar, you know, why are you doing all of this? Why are you building real estate portfolios? Why are you helping people get into real estate? You know, kind of what are your reasons why? And then of course, you know, what are your goals with this whole thing? Well, the big reason why is that 
I really enjoy what I do, number one, from a personal, purely like from a personal perspective. I really enjoy what I do. I was in the public markets before, stock market, all of that stuff. And here, uh, it's still a very interesting way where you have to physically go find something. It's like a treasure hunt of sorts, right? It's a very, it's exciting, very exciting that way. And from a, from a second, from another alternative perspective, look, it's I've it's allowed me the platform to obviously look. It's very good business, but it's allowed me the platform to help other, a lot of other people out, and that's a very good feeling. Like you know, I get a lot of notes from my investors that say, you know what, I had a guy send me a picture said he's in Hawaii with his family, and he said, here's all the money you made me, and then he sent me a picture of him. You know, I mean, look, it's a nice feeling, right? I mean, it, it kind of looks nice, right? And the other point is, it's look similar to your podcast is. Just by the nature of this business, I get to meet so many interesting people that I learn from so many people that I feel it's like I'm, I'm not paying for an education, but getting an education in life. Yeah, I like that. Awesome. We well, you know what are your plans going forward? You know, are you going to grow your portfolio even more and want to help more people? Are you going to get to a certain point and go to Hawaii yourself? You know, what's the future look like for you? Oh man, I wish I could take time off. Uh, I'm actually the type of person who quite enjoys working. I, I'm very structured sort of a person. So even when I go on a vacation, after about a day or two, man, I, I, it's not like I want to work, but I need some structure. I need to know what I'm doing. I can't just completely turn to now. So we're always looking. We're always looking at properties. In fact, we're underwriting a lot of deals in Florida right now. We're getting really good pricing there, really good assets, and we're always looking to talk to more people. You know, interesting folks like yourself, and you know, it's just. It's just a constant, you know, interesting treasure hunt. You find more things, you meet more people, you're always doing more deals and we're always growing because if you don't grow, you're, uh, you're going back. You always have to keep putting one foot ahead of the other and keep doing the right thing over the long term and things work out. Yeah, I love it. Well, Omar, it's a lot of fun, you know, getting to understand your approach to real estate investing, what drives you, what motivates you, you know, how you view investments, especially with a financial background. So really cool to just hear your take on stuff. Well, as we're wrapping up here, we've got a lightning round. It's just a series of questions we ask every one of our guests. You up for it? Let's, let's hope so. <laughs> All let's right. do it. Well, the very first question we've got for you is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what did you do to overcome that? I think the biggest hurdle, um, and I think it's still a hurdle for everybody pretty much that I talk to, is when I moved to Texas, I, I mean, I didn't know a person there. I mean, I had some inbuilt networks, but I didn't like know, know them, right? So the biggest thing is and continues to be networking because a lot of folks think, oh, it's just about the money or it's about this or that. And that's not the case, man. It's always about meeting more people, networking with the right people, learning from them and just developing your relationships organically. Yeah, I love that. Well, Omar, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Oh, yeah. I'm very driven by my calendar. So anytime I have to do something, I put it in my calendar. And what I, start, I, what I tell people is, look, if it's not in my calendar, it does not exist. Okay, For me, it might as well not exist. And is that so, a physical calendar for you or an electronic no, calendar? Like, like I have it on my phone, right? Because yeah. what happens is then I can sync uh, multiple calendars from various businesses into one area. And then I, I can see what's going on. Because like I said, man, I'm a very structured guy. I'm a very meticulous guy by nature. I need structure and I need to know what I'm doing. Yeah. Now, it doesn't always have to work that way. I'm not anal about it, but I need some rough level of structure in my life. Yeah, sure. I uh, keep a a uh, written physical calendar all the time. It's more of a player journal. That's but I'm smart, man. That's good, man. <laughs> well, I've been really thinking about transitioning over to a more of an electronic calendar and kind of trying to develop some more time blocking skills. So, you know, interesting hot point for me at this point in my, uh, Oh, it's a lifelong thing, man. I'm still struggling with it. You, you, you always, you can never really perfect it. 
because there's always something going on, right? There's always something that you can do that, you know, kind of takes away from this task that you're doing right now. Yeah, sure. Well, Omar, do you have an online resource that you find valuable? Well, you know, um, I read a lot of books, man. I mean, I realized I started going to a lot of blogs and I realized it was the same stuff over and over again, just because people are trying to fill content. So I read a lot of books. Um, I'm always, I'm just a curious reader, man. I literally have lots of friends uh, sending me books all the time or giving me recommendations, read a lot of that. Listen to a lot of podcasts like yours, as an example. And apart from that, look, we have a lot of contributors now that are contributing to our website, on our blogs. You know, we just had Annie from Good Egg. She wrote about how she scaled up her business in a year. And that gives people's perspective because look, I'm a very analytical financial guy, run the assets, all of that, but I have the marketing partners, they provide that sort of perspective. So when you look at it and when you read a lot of articles, these are like really deep, long posts. So the, we, our whole intention with this thing was not to write a 250, 500 word kind of filler content. This was like minimum 2000 words. So when you read it, you come out knowing something that you didn't know before in, in yeah. detail. That's almost more like what I would call an article rather than a blog post, right? Because blog posts are usually kind of high level, skim them in five minutes and, you know. It's... Yeah, look, you know what? You're right. Because what was happening is anytime I needed an answer to something or needed to refer back, refer back to something, I realized there was just so much noise out there that it was getting so hard for me to find quality content that I was like, all right, we have a team. We have really smart people. Let's try to develop quality content that we would like to use ourselves. So when yeah. we go back, we, we continuously refer back to those things. Yeah, awesome. Well, that translates well to our next question, which is what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? Okay, I can actually tell you the book I'm reading right now. Let me actually look it up. I'm forgetting the name because a lot of people had uh, referred me to this book. So, okay, so this book that I'm reading right now, a lot of folks refer me to this, is Investing. It's a, it's a mouthful. Investing in Real Estate Private Equity, an Insider's Guide to Real Estate Partnerships, Funds, Joint Ventures, and Crowdfunding by Sean Cook. Now, the name sounds super boring. You're going to go to sleep. (laughs) I don't know why the guy chose this name for such a good quality book, but it is. The name is very misleading. It's a very good book. Go read it. Okay. Yeah, we'll certainly link that book in the show notes, and I'll have to re-listen to this episode just to be able to jot that down. But uh, that's essentially Investing in Private Equity Firms by Sean. What was the last name? Sean Cook. In fact, just write Sean Cook real, investing in real estate. Right? You Got should it. get that. Okay, great. Investing in Worst real possible name for a very interesting book. <laughs> I love it. Well, Omar, next question. And last, if you were to give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would that be? My 20-year-old self wouldn't listen to me, I'll be honest with you. And he would just brush <laughs> aside and be like, all right, see you later. So he wouldn't listen to me. But if he did and he was smart and I could go back in time, I would tell, the, tell my 20-year-old self to continue building more and more relationships, really focus more on the relationship aspect of things. Uh, I think even more because I think uh, the reason why I've been able to move countries, the reason why I can move multiple cities is that I've been very lucky and privileged to meet the right people and then stay in touch with them. But a lot of times that's a lot of hard work, man, because you've got to, you you know, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? People are busy in their lives. So every month, every quarter, every time there's Christmas or Thanksgiving and New Year's, send a card, send a written note. I'm telling you guys, an email does not compare. A text does not compare when you actually physically write something and send somebody a note. And it doesn't have to be profound. Just has to be, hey, was thinking about you, blah, 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 blah. Right? Trust me, people remember letters because we hardly get any letters that are addressed to us, except bills and spam. 
<laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. So build relationships has kind of been the mantra of what we've really been yeah. talking about on the show is just the power of networks, building relationships. It's a very relationship based business. So if you're to be able to give advice to your 20 year old self, although he might not take it, you might not listen, you know, it would be build relations. So, well, Omar, you know, you're no stranger to building relationships, helping people out, helping people invest in real estate through your company, Boardwalk Wealth. So tell us a little bit about, you know, where people can find you, learn more about you and find those articles or blog posts as we call them. And, uh, you know, just tell us a little bit about where people can learn more about you. Yeah. So you can go to our website at boardwalkwealth.com. That's B-O-A-R-D walkwealth, one word.com. Uh, you have access to all our blogs, podcasts, articles, resources. You can also join our mailing lists right on the first page. This gives you access to all the insider information that we're looking at. You can email me at umar, O-M-A-R, at boardwalkwealth.com. Happy to answer any of your questions. A lot of times I have people, even my investors, even if you know we don't have a deal going on or they're not investing in my deal, but they're investing in somebody else's deal, they ask me, hey, what do you think about this, right? And if I know the person, I know the market, I can tell them good or bad. You know, and immediately they're, they're able to leverage us and our team, even though, you know, it's not like my deal. Who cares? Yeah, sure. Well, Omar, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. It's been a lot of fun having you on the podcast. I think you've provided a lot of unique insight, uh, information, and actionable content to the listeners. As we're wrapping up here, any parting piece of advice you'd like to leave with everyone? Well, I would say please reach out, continue to develop relationships, and always be patient. You know, it's a long term game, it's not a get rich quick scheme, and it's better to be. It's better to be, you know, take your time and get into the right things and hurry into a relationship that you regret three months down the line. Yeah, sure. Love it. Well, Omar, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a lot of fun. Looking forward to having you back on in the future and talking more things real estate. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Omar. Take care. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Omar Khan. Well, Omar shared with us his perspective on a few topics such as renting versus buying your primary residence and investing in single family versus multifamily properties with his view from a chartered financial analyst. So really interesting to hear his take and his perspective on the real estate markets in today's environment. All of the resources we mentioned in today's podcast are linked in the show notes, including the book recommendation by Omar, which is Investing in Real Estate, Private Equity, an Insider's Guide to Real Estate Partnerships, Funds, Joint Ventures, and Crowdfunding by Sean Cook. You can click the link in the show notes and that will take you directly to it, along with BoardWalkWealth.com, where you can find more information about Omar and connect with him if you'd like. Well, for more information, resources, and to connect with me, feel free to reach out to me at www.jacobayers.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.